the book of Ecclesiastes, we're told that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. One of the evidences of this, I think, is the tendency we see among those who are very rich to build buildings or endow libraries or schools in some way do something by which their name will be carried on. They most commonly make their name very prominent at the front of that which they have endowed. We see the same sort of thing in the tendency of people to be very concerned with what people will think about them after they die. They want a good memory of them to live on. Yet when you think about it, it doesn't make that much sense because it's not really going to affect you at all what people think about you after you're dead. I think it's part of our innate desire to be part of something that's permanent, to have something that lasts. And our survivors cooperate with us by putting little memorial plaques to aid the continuation of that memory. Well, these things will last for a time. The memorial plaques will hold up for a while. The the buildings will stand for maybe a few centuries if we're lucky. But eventually both will crumble. These things don't really make us part of that which is permanent. But how can we be part of the permanent? Well, Paul tells us this, answers this question for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And let's look at that chapter together this morning. He tells us there that love is that which is permanent. And by investing myself in love, then I become part of what is permanent. The problem in the Corinthian church was that the people were thinking very highly of themselves on a false basis. They thought that because they had spiritual gifts in abundance among them and miracles were happening and all sorts of supernatural manifestations were present, that therefore they were a mature and spiritual church. But at the same time, the church was lacking in love, as we've been seeing through these weeks of our study of the book. There were Corinthians who were taking, Corinthian Christians who were taking one another to secular courts of law to sue one another. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother and nobody cared anything about it. Let that continue. When they met for their love feasts, the rich would get there first and would consume all the food and wine and end up drunk. When the poor Christians got there, there'd be nothing for them. There are divisions among the church, factions. Those who felt freedom to eat meat offered to idols were doing so with no thought of how that action would affect those who didn't feel free to do that kind of thing. There is a lot of knowledge and a lot of many manifestations of gifts, but there is not much love there. So Paul, in the middle of his discourse on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, includes his chapter on love. In chapter 12, he has spoken about spiritual gifts in general. In chapter 14, he speaks about the abuse of one specific gift, the gift of tongues. And here in the middle of this talk on spiritual gifts, he says there's something that's a lot more important, namely love. He says in verses 1 to 3 that we may be tremendously gifted and fantastically dedicated And yet, if we don't have love, we're nothing. 
It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul's saying here, I may be a tremendously eloquent preacher, such that people come from miles around to hear me preach. Or I may even be endowed with a miraculous gift whereby I can speak in foreign tongues I've never learned. Or, hyperbolically, he says, I may even speak in the tongues of angels. Because the rabbis of his day were debating upon what tongues the angels spoke in. Most said, obviously, they speak in Hebrew. Paul says, I may do all these things, but if I don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I may come up here for half an hour, but all you get out of it is no more than this. A bunch of noise and no profit. He says, I may have the gift of prophecy and understand all kinds of mysteries and revelation that you don't understand have insights into God's truth and His ways that normal people don't have. I may have the gift of faith and be able to say to Schaefer Butte, move, get off in the desert, and it will go. I may be able to perform all kinds of miracles, heal the sick and raise the dead and do all sorts of other things. But if I don't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. I may appear to be something, a spiritual big shot, but in God's eyes I'm a big zero. Or I may be zealously dedicated, he says in verse 3. My, my attitude might be, I'm not going to be like other Christians who are half-hearted in their devotion to the Lord. I'm going to give God my all. I'm going to give away all my frivolous material possessions that everybody else likes. I'm going to spend every waking hour in service for Him. No goofing off for me like other people. I'm going to give God my all and even give my body to be burned if necessary. He says, I may have even that kind of dedication. But if it's not motivated by love, and if my service to other people is not carried out in a loving manner, he says, it profits me nothing. I myself don't profit right now and that I don't grow in my own relationship with God, though I may be very active. It doesn't profit me for eternity, though there are rewards to be had for faithful service to God. They're not had for just doing the activities. The service has to be carried out in a loving manner, be motivated by love for God and other people. How differently we tend to evaluate things. If someone is an eloquent preacher, or an able, knowledgeable teacher, or even a miracle worker, we tend to exalt such a one and think that that person is fantastic, even if he may lack the characteristics of love. But Paul says if we don't have love, we are nothing. Well, what is the love that he speaks of? What are its true marks? Well, he tells us in verses 4 to 7 
tells us here 15 different characteristics of love or descriptions of love. Seven which are positive, love is this way. And eight which are negative, love is not this way. This is not part of love. Now this is not an exhaustive description of love, though we may feel exhausted going through it all. There's so many. Let's look at these descriptions of love and see if we can understand better what it is. He says, first of all, love is patient. If you're loving and you make a suggestion as to the way things should be done, your suggestion seems to be ignored or never put into effect. If you're loving, then you patiently wait while other people seem to ignore you or fail to take hold of your good idea. If people slight you or don't appreciate you or don't recognize what you have done or can do. If you're loving, then you're patient. You're willing to wait your time. If you're loving, then you remain patient, even though you have to tell the kids something 20 times before you get into their heads. And all the mothers are smiling. It is true. If you're loving, then you're patient, because your concern is for the other person. In serving the other, not enforcing the other to to conform to your ideas and your desires. He says next that love is kind. This word is a little bit difficult for me to understand and is a little bit ambiguous, so I did a little study on this one in particular and found out that the word translated kind here was a word that was also used in the ancient Greek world to describe wine that was in its prime state. It would be mellow and smooth. If you age it just long enough, it would taste good, it would be smooth, it would go down easy and be sweet. But if you waited too long, it would grow sour, become bitter and sharp. Kind of got a taste of this recently and I had some apple juice in the refrigerator. We went away for vacation, came back. Before pouring a glass for myself, I decided to give it a little sniff. But I overdid it and took a big whiff and almost ended up on the floor because it had all turned into very bitter vinegar over that time. It's the same sort of thing that Paul's talking that that, uh, that wine would do, and it gives us a good illustration of what Paul is talking about here. Because if we're kind, then we too are mellow, smooth, pleasant to the taste, pleasant to interact with with other people. If we're kind, then there's there no there's no harshness or bitterness, and we have to make a criticism of somebody else. If we're kind, then we're we don't have caustic and sharp words when we shop in a store and the salesperson is very slow and doesn't seem to do things right and makes me wait. Or when your child spills milk at the dinner table. If you're loving, then you have kind words and you don't say, you stupid, clumsy idiot, why do you keep doing this kind of thing? But rather, your words are smooth, they're pleasant. You're pleasant always to be around if you're kind. The reason we're sharp and harsh at times is because we want to get back at other people for not conforming to our desires, for not fitting into our scheme of things. They get in our way. And therefore, we have harsh, sharp words and actions towards them. It's a way to inflict punishment and show them that they shouldn't bother us. But if we're loving, Paul says, and we'll be kind, Pleasant, understanding, easy to get along with, with the other person. Next, he says, love is not jealous. If I'm loving, 
then I'm not jealous of the successes that you get, that you make, or the breaks that you get. So I'm glad for you. But if I'm self-centered, only out for myself, then I get jealous that you succeed where I don't. The person who's single is not jealous of the person who's happily married. The person who's married but not so happily is not jealous of the person who's happily single. If I'm motivated by love, then I'm not jealous of you because your gifts are more glamorous than mine and your ministry is being more effective than mine. But rather, I'm glad that you are able to do so much for God's people. If a child is motivated by love, then he's not jealous of his sister who makes better grades than he. But glad for the successes that the sister has. If I'm motivated by love, then I'm not envious of your possessions and think, I wish I could have a house that nice, or I wish I could get a new car. Why is it that they always get the brakes? Whether I rejoice in what other people can get, the pleasures, the good things that they can have. I'm not out to compare. Now, the, the counterpart to this is the next description. He says, love does not brag. Because being jealous and bragging both come from the same attitude, that of being competitive. You're jealous of somebody if they have what you uh, what you don't have but want. You, you're boastful if you have what you think other people want and don't have. Both of them come out of a competitive spirit. Because we tend to want to put other people down and exalt ourselves so that we will feel good. It's not love that causes you to say, well, don't you find it interesting that I always win when we play Scrabble? Because love is interested in the other person. You're not out to exalt yourself. You're not competing. You're not trying to look and find out that surely I'm better than that person in some way. Maybe I can just find it and then I can point that out and boast and make myself feel good. Put that person in his place. Well, you may be sitting there right now and thinking, I would never do something like that, boast like that. Well, don't give up hope because Paul has a word to you as well. He says, love is not arrogant. Now, you're arrogant if you're, if you're a boastful person, but you just happen to be a little bit more refined. You know better than to go around boasting in your greatness. So you keep it to yourself and you look down your nose at other people. You find ways to compare and think, I would never do the things he did. You look down at all those who don't meet up to your standards. Because love is not out to compare and find out how it's better than other people. Because love is out to serve the other and give to the other and meet the other's needs. He says, love is not jealous, boastful, or arrogant. Next he says that love does not act unbecomingly. It is not rude. Now he doesn't mean here that if you're loving, then you memorize Amy Vanderbilt's book of etiquette. You may not know which fork to use at the, uh, at the right time for a certain dish. But if you're loving, then you're thoughtful of the other person. You're never deliberately rude. You go to somebody's house and they 
for dinner and they burn the meat and you don't make some cute comment like, what do you think I am, a god that you offer me burnt offerings? But rather you're tactful and thoughtful. You try to go out of your way even to smooth over the hurt feelings of others. Minimize the things that would embarrass them and make them feel out of place because you're thinking about them. When you're in a group, if you're really loving, you're not ignoring certain people. There's a tendency that we all have to talk to the people that turn us on and ignore the other people. But if you're loving, you're not rude like that and excluding some because you're out to serve all, not just to have a good time and with those and trying to impress those that you like. He says next that love does not seek its own. If you're loving, you don't have the attitude. Things have to be done my way. Rather, you're tolerant of people who do things other ways. Because you recognize that though your way seems best to you, people might have other ways to do things that are better for them. So you're not insistent that everything be done just the way you want it to be done. If I'm loving, then the recognition and appreciation that I get in ministering to other people is really not that important to me because I'm out to serve them, not to seek my own by seeking my own glory and and, uh, good feeling. Using the ministry as simply a stepping stone for satisfying myself. When you took a vacation this summer, if you did, or if you did some kind of recreation this weekend, what are the motivating things that guided what you did? Were your thoughts something like, here's something that would be good for serving my family, serving other people? Or is it simply, this is what I want to do and I don't care if nobody else likes it. I'm going to do it. Paul says, love does not seek its own. It's not trying to push other people aside and insist on its own way. It's ready to serve and give up its own way. Next he says that love is not provoked. If I have love in my heart that your bothersome habits, the injustices that you do to me, are not cause of provocation, but rather I see them as challenges whereby I can serve you and glorify God. If I get provoked at you when you step in my toes, when you get in my way, if I get provoked when I'm the center of things. Now, I, for one, tend to get provoked when in one situation I tend to get provoked in is when I'm driving uh, along a street and the person in front of me is going 35 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Well, why do I get provoked at that? Because I am the center of the universe and they should know that I'm back there and I need to get somewhere. And it's not just a desire of mine, but I have a right to get to my destination as fast as the law will allow me. Don't I? Well, Paul says love is not provoked. You don't see other people's intrusions upon you. They're not in the way of you doing your thing, but rather they're there for you to serve. RSV translates this, love is not irritable. It's not able to be irritated. Now, that sounds very difficult. 
I think it's probably for that reason the King James translator stuck in the word easily. If you have a King James translation, you notice that it says, love is not easily provoked. Because what we all want to do is say, well, you know, I can be, I can be civil for a while. I can hold it down, I can take some things. But I have my limits. And I want to be able to hold on to that and say, it's right, it's natural, it's normal to have my limits. But unfortunately, the King James translators were wrong at that point. Now, modern versions are right that just translate it, love is not provoked. Because love doesn't have limits. It's not that you can do something five times and I'll, and I'll overlook it. But if you do it a sixth time, that's it. Love is not provoked. I may have, I can't remember if I told this story here or not, but I heard a story one time of a, uh, a man who, back in the frontier days, who just got married, and uh, he and his wife got in their buggy to drive back to their ranch after they got married. Did I tell this one already? And uh, as they're going along, the horse driving the buggy tripped a little bit, stumbled on a stone. The man says, that's one. Wife kind of looks at him, kind of wondering what did I get myself into. And they go along a little bit more, and and the horse is not watching where he's going, and he steps in a pothole in the road and trips up a little bit more. And the man says, "That's two. And they continue on a little bit more, and and uh, squirrel runs out in the road, and the horse gets it too excited and trips again. The man pulls the reins and stops the buggy, says, "That's three. and he gets out of the Gets out of the buggy, takes out his gun, and shoots him in the head. And his wife says, Honey, don't you think you're being a little bit hasty? He says, That's one. <laughs> we all tend to have our limits. We can put up with three with two injustices, but we reach our limit and that's it. We've got to explode. But Paul says here, love is not provoked. You may be thinking, but Paul, you don't know what I have to put up with. Customers who are harsh and, and insensitive and unthinking and lie to you and try to pull all kinds of things over on you. Or a husband who just won't pick up his socks. Kids who just will never pick up their rooms and make their beds. I try and try and they won't do it. But Paul, you don't know what it's like to live with a wife who's continually nagging you. You don't know the situations I'm in, the things I have to go through. Well, Paul says, I may not know exactly where you are, but I know what love is. And love is not provoked. You never come to the end of your rope. You never reach your limit. Because the only reason you're provoked, the only reason you're irritated, is because that person has finally stepped on your toes. You can ignore it once or twice but they are bothering you. And you are the center of the universe and they should know that and not bother you. They should conform to your desires. If you're loving, you're seeking to serve them and meet their needs. And therefore, no matter what they do, they don't provoke you. You may get upset with what's, what their sin is doing to them and want to correct it. A parent may get upset with his child for disobedience and want to discipline for the child's good. 
So if the parent is fully loving in this way, the parent is never irritated, never provoked to anger for what he has to put up with in this child. He's always concerned for the child, what's good for him. He says, next, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Here he uses an accounting term. What he has in mind is, is each of us have a little black book and every time somebody does something, we take it out and write it down. David Melhoff, October 14th, said a nasty word to me. We write it down, we store it up, we, t- we, we take account of it. Why do we do this sort of thing? Why do we hold grudges and become resentful? Well, the reason, I think, is because we want to get back. And so we rehearse the incident in our mind. Because we want to remember exactly how it happened and exactly how many times it's happened. So that when we get a chance, we can get back. Maybe it's a cold shoulder. Or maybe the silent treatment. Or maybe we store up the memory of that incident for 5, 10, 20 years. But someday there comes that chance when we have the juicy opportunity to say that cutting remark, to cut that person to the quick and finally get back for what he did to me. The reason we want to hold grudges, the reason we want to remember it, we want to make sure that he gets punished for what he's done. We're afraid if we forget that nobody's going to punish him. Maybe our punishment will will simply be uh, one that doesn't look so bad to us. We simply go tell people, would you know what he did to me? And it's just kind of a talk with our friends. But really what it is, is we're trying to, to punish him by making everybody else feel bad. And know all the evil things that he did to me. But Paul says love is not like that. Someone asked me recently, well, I'll forgive, but do I have to forget? What the person wants to do is halfway forgive. Paul says, if you don't take it into account, obviously you don't remember. You give it up. You, you, you still might be saying, but how can we do this? This is impossible. I can't forgive this person. Well, God commands us to love. He says, love one another, even as we sang before. And part of love is having a forgiving spirit. And God enables us to do all that he calls us to. He gives us the, the resources necessary for us to love. Therefore, he gives us the resources that we need to be able to forgive and to forgive fully. Paul continues. And he says in verse 6, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. If you're loving, then you don't rejoice when teenagers slash the tires of your cranky neighbor's car. Finally, he's getting something that he deserves. You don't rejoice when people are caught in their evil so that they can get, get paid back what they've done to you. Now, there's a place for rejoicing in the right, that justice is prevailing. But if you're loving, then you're still sorrowful for that person who has done the wrong and has to endure punishment. You're not glad that he's finally getting what he deserves. 
If you're loving, then you don't really rejoice at the uh, hero in the movie who gets away with robbing a bank and, and making the establishment look foolish. You don't rejoice at wrong, but you rejoice at the right. Then verse 7, Paul says four things about love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, the first word, it's translated bear, is a little bit ambiguous. And it can have two different meanings. It can mean bear or endure, or it can mean to cover. And if you have the New International Version, you notice that it's translated to cover. If you have the New American Standard, you notice in your margin that it says cover there. I think that this is better, a better translation here, in light of the fact that Paul does say endure at the end of the verse. It would be a little bit redundant to say it twice. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, love covers a multitude of sins. I think that's what Paul is saying here. If you're loving and you hear a rumor, what do you do with it? Cover it over or spread it about? Or do you try to even diffuse it? Do you cover it over by keeping it to yourself or diffusing it? Well, that may be true, but you know, a lot of times uh, people misinterpret events and motives and you don't really know what's, uh, that that person really meant, meant it that way. Maybe you should go talk to him. Or, well, maybe he did something that was wrong, I don't know, but you know, he's really a nice guy and there are a lot of good qualities about him. Love covers all things. And he says also that love believes all things. Not that love believes all rumors, obviously. But his point is that love believes the best about people. If you hear a rumor and you're loving, then your response is, well, maybe so, maybe not. Until I see the evidence, I'm not going to believe it. Have you ever heard a rumor and your response was, that sounds just like him. I bet he did it too. The reason we do that is because we're not loving. That is a natural tendency of us all. I think that that's, it's the tendency to want to think bad about other people and thereby exalt ourselves that, that runs the whole uh, soap opera industry. Because we love to watch all these things on TV and all these bad things people do and sit around and talk about them. Well, what a crumb this guy was to leave his wife here when she was eight months pregnant and in the hospital and this and that and the other. And, we love to do that kind of thing. But that's not part of love. It's part of the flesh. Love believes the best. And then he says love hopes all things. Even if you've been, even if you've been shown that the person did do that bad thing, you still hope. Well, I hope that, that he will do better. That he'll correct this. Have you ever said this to somebody, you'll never change. That's not love. That's a condemnation. But love hopes all things. It expects, well, probably he's going to change. Probably the good will come out. And finally, he says, love endures all things. No matter how many times the person fails, no matter how corrupt he's gotten, you never come to a place where you say, well, he's lost my love. He's been so bad I have no more use for him. And I write him off because love endures. Let me read you a comment on this verse that I ran across. 
For love has no evidence, it believes the best. When the evidence is adverse, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it still courageously waits. That's what love is like. In all these descriptions of love, you could summarize that love is seeking the best for the other, not exalting yourself at the expense of somebody else. In verses 8 to 13, Paul says that love not only endures no matter what a person can do to you, but it endures time as well. He says, love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. He says that spiritual gifts are important in chapter 12. But he says here in verse 8, Nevertheless, they will be done away with. And he picks out just three. Prophecy, tongues, and the gift of knowledge. He says they will be done away with. They won't last. He says we have in verses 9 to 11, he says we have a hint of the fact they won't last because after all they're partial anyway. He says, now I know in part, now I prophesy in part. I don't have a full orb knowledge as of yet. And when the perfect comes, he says, then the partial will be done away. Verse 11, he explains with an illustration of childhood. When I was a child, I did certain things. I spoke in certain ways. I thought in certain ways. When I became a, an adult, I gave up these things. In the same sort of way, these gifts are good, but they're partial, and they're only for a time. When our adulthood comes, we'll give them all up. Well, when is this perfect that comes? What is the perfect? Some of us have suggested that the perfect is the New Testament. When the New Testament would come and be complete, then either all spiritual gifts or certain spiritual gifts would be done away with. But Paul says in verse 12, something about the perfect that excludes that interpretation. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then, when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Paul's knowledge without the New Testament, complete New Testament, versus knowledge which would, which would come about with the complete New Testament cannot be compared to knowing in part and knowing fully just as God fully knows him. Rather, the perfect is when Christ comes again, when we're in eternity with him, and we will know perfectly. We will no longer know in part. We will no longer have to speak in God in terms of analogies, figures of speech, but we'll know directly. And he says, when that time comes, all these spiritual gifts, which are, which are important now, will be done away with. But faith, hope, and love, these three will remain throughout eternity. We'll always believe in God. 
will always have a continuing expectation of what he's going to do in the future. And we'll always relate to him and to one another in love. He says, therefore, if you want to be part of the permanent, invest yourself in love. Don't play games. Don't simply be content with, with religious activity. But become people of love. Your relationship to one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, your relationships at work, in the home, wherever you are, become more and more people of love. Now, Paul doesn't tell us here, but reminds us elsewhere, that what God calls us to, he enables. And therefore, we can have the confidence that though these marks of love are very high and very beyond what we naturally do, nevertheless, with God, they are possible. Let's pray. Father, we do desire to be part of the permanent, to have our lives count. Teach us, Father, to be lovers. Lord, it's so easy for us to have a superficial form of love whereby we are nice to people and civil, cordial, and yet we fall far short of the descriptions that Paul gives us here. Help us, Lord, to open ourselves up to you. I'd like right now just to take a minute and each of you think of your own life and think of these descriptions of love and think of one instance in which you are falling down, one quality you lack, one relationship in which you're not giving a perfect love. Pray about that and ask God to help you in this situation.